Welcome back, everyone, to the best of 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We've just begun to celebrate nine years of storytelling by revealing your listener favorites. And of the 436 short stories we've done so far, the number four listener favorite is this one, The Legend of King Arthur, which I did back in 2017. Now that we're done with Howard Pyle's Robin Hood, it's time for some great King Arthur stories, so look for those in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you for being great listeners and fans of the show. And now, The Legend of King Arthur. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This one, the classic tale of King Arthur and all the legend that surrounded him. The legend of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table is the most powerful and enduring legend in the Western world. We have no proof that King Arthur, Guinevere, and Sir Lancelot existed, but their names conjure up a romantic image of gallant knights in shining armor, elegant ladies in medieval castles, heroic quests for the Holy Grail in a world of honor and romance, and the court of Camelot at the center of a royal and mystical Britain. And historians believe they have located a famous Arthur that led troops against the Romans and the Saxons in the late 5th to early 6th century. But the search still goes on for the round table. Arthur is a central figure in the legends making up the matter of Britain. In the 21st century, the legend lives on, not only in literature, but also in adaptations for theater, film, television, comics, and other media. I have a hunch Arthur is going to be with us for a long while. And I've chosen to give you a modernized and modified version of Geoffrey of Monmouth's version in two parts. And now, The Legend of King Arthur, Part 1. Long years ago, there ruled over Britain a king called Uther Pendragon. A mighty prince was he, and feared by all men. Yet, when he sought the love of the fair Egraine of Cornwall, she would have naught to do with him, so that, from grief and disappointment, Uther fell sick, and at last seemed like to die. Now, in those days, there lived a famous magician named Merlin, so powerful that he could change his form at will or even make himself invisible. Nor was there any place so remote but that he could reach it at once, merely by wishing himself there. One day, suddenly, he stood at Uther's bedside and said, Sir King, I know thy grief, and I am ready to help thee. Only promise to give me, at his birth, the son that shall be born to thee, for thou shalt have thy heart's desire. To this the king agreed joyfully, and Merlin kept his word. For he gave Uther the form of one whom Egrain had loved dearly, and so she took him willingly for her husband. When the time had come that a child should be born to the king and queen, Merlin appeared before Uther to remind him of his promise, and Uther swore it should be as he had said. Three days later, a prince was born, and, 
with pomp and ceremony, was christened by the name of Arthur. But immediately thereafter, the king commanded that the child should be carried to the postern gate, there to be given to the old man who would be found waiting without. Not long after, Uther fell sick, and he knew that his end was come. So, by Merlin's advice, he called together his knights and barons, and he said to them, My death draws near. I charge you, therefore, that ye obey my son, even as ye have obeyed me, and my curse upon him if he claim not the crown when he is a man grown. Then the king turned his face to the wall and died. Scarcely was Uther laid in his grave before disputes arose. Few of the nobles had seen Arthur or even heard of him, and not one of them would have been willing to be ruled by a child. Rather, each thought himself fitted to be king, and strengthening his own castle, made war on his neighbors until confusion alone was supreme, and the poor groaned because there was none to help them. Now when Merlin carried away Arthur, for Merlin was the old man who had stood at the postern gate, he had known all that would happen, and had taken the child to keep him safe from the fierce barons until he should be of age to rule wisely and well, and perform all the wonders prophesied of him. He gave the child to the care of the good knight Sir Ector to bring up with his son Kay, but revealed not to him that it was the son of Uther Pendragon that was given unto his charge. At last, when years had passed, and Arthur was grown a tall youth, well skilled in knightly exercises, Merlin went to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and advised him that he should call together at Christmas time all the chief men of the realm to the great cathedral in London. For, said Merlin, there shall be seen a great marvel, by which it shall be made clear to all men who is the lawful king of this land? The archbishop did as Merlin counseled. Under pain of a fearful curse, he bade barons and knights come to London to keep the feast and to pray heaven to send peace to the realm. The people hastened to obey the archbishop's commands, and from all sides, barons and knights came riding in to keep the birth feast of our Lord. And when they had prayed and were coming forth from the cathedral, they saw a strange sight. There, in the open space before the church, stood, on a great stone, an anvil thrust through with a sword, and on the stone were written these words, Whoso can draw forth this sword is rightful king of Britain born. At once there were fierce quarrels, each man clamoring to be the first to try his fortune, none doubting his own success. Then the archbishop decreed that each should make the venture in turn, from the greatest baron to the least knight, and each in turn, having put forth his utmost strength, failed to move the sword but one inch, and drew back, ashamed. So the archbishop dismissed the company, and having appointed guards to watch over the stone, sent messengers to all the land to give word of great jousts to be held in London at Easter, when each knight could give proof of his skill and courage and try whether the adventure of the sword was for him. Among those who rode to London at Easter was the good Sir Ector, and with him his son, Sir Kay, newly made a knight, and the young Arthur. When the morning came that the jousts should begin, Sir Kay and Arthur mounted their horses and set for the lists. But before they reached the field, Kay looked and saw that he had left his sword behind. 
Immediately, Arthur turned back to fetch it for him, only to find the house fast shut, for all were gone to view the tournament. Sore, vexed was Arthur, fearing lest his brother Kay should lose his chance of gaining glory, till, of a sudden, he bethought him of the sword of the great anvil before the cathedral. Thither he rode with all speed, and the guards having deserted their post to view the tournament, there was none to forbid him the adventure. He leapt from his horse, seized the hilt, and instantly drew forth the sword as easily as from a scabbard. Then, mounting his horse, and thinking no marvel of what he had done, he rode after his brother, and handed him the weapon. When Kay looked at it, he saw at once that it was the wondrous sword from the stone. In great joy he sought his father, and showing it to him, said, Then must I be king of Britain. But Sir Ector bade him say how he came by the sword. And when Sir Kay told how Arthur had brought it to him, Sir Ector bent his knee to the boy Arthur, and said, Sir, I perceive that ye are my king, and here I tender you my homage, as Kay did as his father. Then the three sought the archbishop, to whom they related all that had happened, and he, much marveling, called the people together to the great stone, and bade Arthur thrust back the sword, and draw it forth again in the presence of all, which he did with ease. But an angry murmur arose from the barons, who cried that what a boy could do, a man could do. So, at the archbishop's word, the sword was put back, and each man, whether baron or knight, tried in his turn to draw it forth, and failed. Then, for the third time, Arthur drew forth the sword. Immediately there arose from the people a great shout, Arthur is king, we will have no king but Arthur. And though the great barons scowled and threatened, they fell on their knees before him while the archbishop placed the crown upon his head and swore to obey him faithfully as their lord and sovereign. Thus Arthur was made king, and to all he did justice, righting wrongs and giving to all their dues. Nor was he forgetful of those who had been his friends. For Kay, whom he loved as a brother, he made seneschal and chief of his household, and to Sir Ector, his foster father, he gave broad lands. Thus Arthur was made king, but he had to fight for his own, for eleven great kings drew together and refused to acknowledge him as their lord, and chief amongst the rebels was King Lot of Orknev, who had married Arthur's sister, Bellicent. By Merlin's advice, Arthur sent for help overseas to Ban and Bors, the two great kings who ruled in Gaul. With their aid, he overthrew his foes in a great battle near the river Trent, and then he passed with them into their own lands and helped them drive out their enemies. So there was ever great friendship between Arthur and the kings Ban and Bors and all their kindred, and afterwards some of the most famous knights of the round table were of that kin. Then King Arthur set himself to restore order throughout his kingdom. To all who would submit and amend their evil ways, he showed kindness. But those who persisted in oppression and wrong, he removed, putting in their places others who would deal justly with the people. And because the land had become overrun with forest during the days of misrule, he cut roads through the thickets that no longer wild beasts and men, fiercer than beasts, should lurk in their gloom to the harm of the weak and defenseless. Thus it came to pass that soon the peasant plowed his fields in safety, and where there had been wastes, men dwelt again in peace and prosperity. Amongst the lesser kings whom Arthur helped to rebuild their towns and restore order was King 
Leodegrance of Carneliard. Now Leodegrance had one fair child, his daughter Guinevere. And from the time that first he saw her, Arthur gave her all his love. So he sought counsel of Merlin, his chief advisor. Merlin heard the king sorrowfully and said, Sir king, when a man's heart is set, he may not change. Yet had it been well if ye had loved another. So the king sent his knights to Leodegrance to ask him of his daughter, and Leodegrance consented, rejoicing to wed her to so good and knightly a king. With great pomp the princess was conducted to Canterbury, and there the king met her, and they too were wed by the archbishop in the great cathedral, amid the rejoicings of the people. On that same day did Arthur found his order of the round table, the fame of which was to spread throughout Christendom and endure through all time. Now the round table had been made for King Uther Pendragon by Merlin, who had meant thereby to set forth plainly to all men the roundness of the earth. After Uther died, King Leodegrance had possessed it. But when Arthur was wed, he sent it to him as a gift, and great was the king's joy at receiving it. One hundred and fifty knights might take their places about it, and for them Merlin made sieges or seats. One hundred and twenty-eight did Arthur knight at that great feast. Thereafter, if any sieges were empty, at the high festival of Pentecost, new knights were ordained to fill them, and by magic was the name of each knight found inscribed in letters of gold in his proper siege. One seat only long remained unoccupied, and that was the siege perilous. No knight might occupy it until the coming of Sir Galahad, for without danger to his life, none might sit there who was not free from all stain of sin. With pomp and ceremony did each knight take upon him the vows of true knighthood, to obey the king, to show mercy to all who asked it, to defend the weak, and for no worldly gain to fight in a wrongful cause. And all the knights rejoiced together, doing honor to Arthur and to his queen. Then they rode forth to right the wrong and help the oppressed, and by their aid the king held his realm in peace, doing justice to all. Now as time passed, King Arthur gathered into his order of the round table knights whose peers shall never be found in any age, and foremost amongst them all was Sir Lancelot du Lac. Such was his strength that none against whom he laid lance in rest could keep the saddle, and no shield was proof against his sword dint. But for his courtesy, even more than for his courage and strength, Sir Lancelot was famed far and near. Gentle he was, and ever the first to rejoice in the renown of another. And in the jousts he would avoid encounter with the young and untried knight, letting him pass to gain glory if he might. It would take a great book to record all the famous deeds of Sir Lancelot and all his adventures. He was of Gaul, for his father, King Ban, ruled over Benwick. He was named Lancelot du Lac by the Lady of the Lake who reared him when his mother died. Early he won renown. Then, when there was peace in his own land, he passed into Britain to Arthur's court, where the king received him gladly and made him knight of the round table and took him for his trustiest friend, and so it was that when Guinevere was to be brought to Canterbury to be married to the king, Lancelot was chief of the knights sent to wait upon her. And of this came the sorrow of later days, for from the moment he saw her, Sir Lancelot loved Guinevere, for her sake remaining wifeless all his days, and in all things being her faithful knight. 
but busybodies and mischief-makers spoke evil of Sir Lancelot and the queen, and from their talk came the undoing of the king and the downfall of his great work. But that was after long years, and after many true knights had lived their lives, honoring the king and queen, and doing great deeds. Before Merlin passed from the world of men, he had uttered many marvelous prophecies, and one that boded ill to King Arthur. For he foretold that, in the days to come, a son of Arthur's sister should stir up bitter war against the king, and at last a great battle should be fought, when many a brave knight should find his doom. Now, among the nephews of Arthur, was one most dishonorable. His name was Mordred. No knightly deed had he ever done, and he hated to hear the good report of others because he himself was a coward and envious. But of all the round table there was none that Mordred hated more than Sir Lancelot du Lac, whom all true knights held in most honor. And not the less did Mordred hate Lancelot that he was the knight whom Queen Guinevere had in most esteem. So at last, his jealous rage passing all bounds, he spoke evil of the queen and of Lancelot, saying that they were traitors to the king. Now Sir Gawain and Sir Gareth, Mordred's brothers, refused to give ear to these slanders, holding that Sir Lancelot, in his knightly service of the queen, did honor to King Arthur also. But by ill fortune another brother, Sir Agravain, had ill will to the queen, and professed to believe Mordred's evil tales. So the two went to King Arthur with their ill stories. Now when Arthur had heard them, he was wroth, for never would he lightly believe evil of any, and Sir Lancelot was the knight whom he loved above all others. Sternly then he bade them be gone, and come no more to him with unproven tales against any, and least of all, against Sir Lancelot and their lady, the queen. The two departed, but in their hearts was hatred against Lancelot and the queen, more bitter than ever for the rebuke they had called down upon themselves. Great was the king's grief. Despite all that Mordred could say, he was slow to doubt Sir Lancelot, whom he loved, but his mind was filled with forebodings, and well he knew that their kin would seek vengeance on Sir Lancelot, and the noble fellowship of the round table be utterly destroyed. All too soon it proved even as the king had feared. Many were found to hold with Sir Mordred, some from envy of the honor and worship of the noble Sir Lancelot, and among them even were those who dared to raise their voice against the queen herself, calling for judgment upon her. As leagued with a traitor against the king, and as having caused the death of so many good knights. Now in those days the law was that if any one were accused of treason by witnesses, or taken in the act, that one should die the death by burning, be it man or woman, knight or churl. So then the murmurs grew to a loud clamor that the law should have its course, and that King Arthur should pass sentence on the queen. Then was the king's woe doubled, for, said he, I sit as king to be a rightful judge and keep all the law, wherefore I may not do battle for my own queen, and now there is none other to help her. So a decree was issued that Queen Guinevere should be burnt at the stake outside the walls of Carlisle. Forthwith King Arthur sent for his nephew, Sir Gawain, and said to him, Fair nephew, I give it in charge to you to see that all is done as has been decreed. But Sir Gawain answered boldly, 
Sir King, never will I be present to see my lady the queen die. It is of ill counsel that ye have consented to her death. Then the king bade Gawain send his two young brothers, Sir Gareth and Sir Gaheris, to receive his commands, and these he desired to attend the queen to the place of execution. So Gareth made answer for both. My lord the king, we owe you obedience in all things, but know that it is sore against our wills that we obey you in this, nor will we appear in arms in the place where that noble lady shall die. Then sorrowfully they mounted their horses and rode to Carlisle. When the day appointed had come, the queen was led forth to a place without the walls of Carlisle, and there she was bound to the stake to be burnt to death. Loud were her ladies' lamentations, and many a lord was found to weep at that grievous sight of a queen brought so low. Yet was there none who dared come forward as her champion, lest he should be suspected of treason. As for Gareth and Gaheris, they could not bear the sight and stood with their faces covered in their mantles. Then, just as the torch was to be applied to the wood, there was a sound as of many horses galloping, and the next instant a band of knights rushed upon the astonished throng, their leader cutting down all who crossed his path until he had reached the queen, whom he lifted to his saddle and bore from the press. Then all men knew that it was Sir Lancelot, come knightly to rescue the queen, and in their hearts they rejoiced. So with little hindrance they rode away, Sir Lancelot and all his kin with the queen in their midst, till they came to the castle of the joyous guard, where they held the queen in safety and all reverence. At last Sir Lancelot desired of King Arthur assurance of liberty for the queen, as also safe conduct for himself and his knights, that he might bring Dame Guinevere with due honor to the king at Carlisle, and there too the king pledged his word. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, The Legend of King Arthur, Part 2. So Lancelot set forth with the queen, and behind them rode a hundred knights arrayed in green velvet, the housings of the horses of the same all studded with precious stones. Thus they passed to the city of Carlisle openly, in sight of all, and there were many who rejoiced that the queen was come again, and Sir Lancelot with her, though they of Gawain's party scowled upon him. When they were come into the great hall where Arthur sat, with Sir Gawain and other great lords about him, Sir Lancelot led Guinevere to the throne, and both knelt before the king. Then, rising, Sir Lancelot lifted the queen to her feet, and thus he spoke to King Arthur, boldly and well before the whole court. My lord, Sir Arthur, I bring you here your queen, than whom no truer nor nobler lady ever lived. And here stand I, Sir Lancelot du Lac, ready to do battle with any that dare gainsay it. And with these words, 
Sir Lancelot turned and looked upon the lords and knights present in their places, but none would challenge him in that cause, nor even Sir Gawain, for he had ever affirmed that Dame Guinevere was a true and honorable lady. Then Sir Lancelot spoke again, Now, my lord Arthur, in my own defense, it behooves me to say that never in aught have I been false to you. Peace, said the king to Sir Lancelot. We give you fifteen days in which to leave this kingdom. Then Sir Lancelot sighed heavily and said, Full well I see that nothing availeth me. Then he went to the queen where she sat and said, Madam, the time is come when I must leave this fair realm that I have loved. Think well of me, I pray you, and send for me if ever there aught in which a true knight might serve a lady. Therewith he turned him about and, without greeting to any, passed through the hall, and with his faithful knights rode to the joyous guard, though ever thereafter, in memory of that sad day, he called it the Dolores Guard. In after times, when the king had passed overseas to France, leaving Sir Mordred to rule Britain in his stead, there came messengers from Britain bearing letters for King Arthur, and more evil news than they brought might not well be, for they told how Sir Mordred had usurped his uncle's realm. First he had caused it to be noised abroad that King Arthur was slain in battle with Sir Lancelot, and since there be many ever ready to believe any idle rumor and eager for any change, it had been no hard task for Sir Mordred to call the lords to a parliament and persuade them to make him king. But the queen could not be brought to believe that her lord was dead, so she took refuge in the Tower of London from Sir Mordred's violence, nor was she to be induced to leave her strong refuge for aught that Mordred could promise or threaten. Forthwith King Arthur bade his host made ready to move, and when they had reached the coast they embarked and made sail to reach Britain with all possible speed. Sir Mordred, on his part, had heard of their sailing, and hasted to get together a great army. It was grievous to see how many a stout knight held by Mordred, aye, even many whom Arthur himself had raised to honor and fortune. For it is the nature of men to be fickle. Thus it was that, when Arthur drew near to Dover, he found Mordred with a mighty host, waiting to oppose his landing. Then there was a great sea-fight, those of Mordred's party going out in boats to board King Arthur's ships and slay him and his men, or ever they should come to land. Right valiantly did King Arthur bear him, as was his wont, and boldly his followers fought in his cause, so that at last they drove off their enemies and landed at Dover in spite of Mordred and his array. Now by this time many that Mordred had cheated by his lying reports had drawn unto King Arthur, to whom at heart they had ever been loyal, knowing him for a true and noble king, and hating themselves for having been deceived by such a false usurper as Sir Mordred. One night, as King Arthur slept, he thought that Sir Gawain stood before him, looking just as he did in life, and said to him, My uncle and my king, God in his great love has suffered me to come unto you, to warn you that in no wise ye fight on the morrow. For if ye do, ye shall be slain, and with you the most part of the people on both sides. Make ye therefore a treaty. Immediately the king awoke and called to him the best and wisest of his knights. They were all agreed 
that on any terms whatsoever a treaty should be made with Sir Mordred, even as Sir Gawain had said. And with the dawn, messengers went to the camp of the enemy to call Sir Mordred to a conference. So it was determined that the meeting should take place in sight of both armies, in an open space between the two camps, and that King Arthur and Mordred should each be accompanied by fourteen knights. Little enough faith had either in the other, so when they set forth to the meeting, they bade their hosts join battle if ever they saw a sword drawn. Now as they talked, it befell that an adder coming out of a bush hard by, stung by a knight in the foot, and he, seeing the snake, drew his sword to kill it, and thought no harm thereby. But on the instant that the sword flashed, the trumpets blared on both sides, and the two hosts rushed to battle. Never was there fought a fight of such enmity, for brother fought with brother, and comrade with comrade, and fiercely they cut and thrust, with many a bitter word between, while King Arthur himself, his heart hot within him, rode through and through the battle, seeking the traitor Mordred. So they fought all day till at last the evening fell. Then Arthur, looking round him, saw of his valiant knights but two left, Sir Lucan and Sir Bedivere, and these sore wounded. And there, over against him, by a great heap of the dead, stood Sir Mordred, the cause of all this ruin. Thereupon the king, his heart his heart nigh broken with grief for the loss of his true knights, cried with a loud voice, Traitor! Now is thy doom upon thee! And with his spear gripped in both hands, he rushed upon Sir Mordred, and smote him that the weapon stood out a fathom behind. And Sir Mordred knew that he had his death wound. With all the might that he had, he thrust him up the spear to the haft, and with his sword struck King Arthur upon the head, that the steel pierced the helmet, and bit into the head. Then, and only then, did Mordred fall back, stark and dead. Sir Lucan and Sir Bedivere went to the king where he lay, swooning from the blow, and bore him to the little chapel on the seashore. As they laid him on the ground, Sir Lucan fell dead beside the king, and Arthur, coming to himself, found but Sir Bedivere alive beside him. So King Arthur lay wounded to the death, grieving, not that his end was come, but for the desolation of his kingdom and the loss of his good knights. And looking upon the body of Sir Lucan, he sighed and said, Alas, true knight, dead for my sake, if I lived, I should ever grieve for thy death, but now mine own end draws nigh. Then, turning to Sir Bevedere, who stood sorrowing beside him, he said, Leave weeping now, for the time is short, and much to do. Hereafter shalt thou weep if thou will, but take now my sword Excalibur, hasten to the waterside, and fling it into the deep. Then watch what happens, and bring me word thereof. Your command shall be obeyed, said Sir Bevedere. And, taking the sword, he departed. But as he went on his way, he looked on the sword, how wondrously it was formed, and the hilt all studded with precious stones. And, as he looked, he called to mind the marvel by which it had come into the king's keeping. For on a certain day, as Arthur walked on the shore of a great lake, there had appeared above the surface of the water a hand brandishing a sword. On the instant the king had leaped into a boat, and rowing into the lake, 
had got the sword and brought it back to land. Then he had seen how, on one side the blade, was written, Keep me, but on the other, throw me away, and, sore perplexed, he had shown it to Merlin, the great wizard, who said, Keep it now. The time for casting away has not yet come. Thinking on this, it seemed to Bevedere that no good but harm must come of obeying the king's word. So, hiding the sword under a tree, he hastened back to the little chapel. Then said the king, What sawest thou? Sir, answered Bevedere, I saw naught but the waves, heard naught but the wind. That is untrue, said King Arthur. I charge thee, as thou art true knight, go again, and spare not to throw away the sword. So Bevedere departed a second time, and his mind was to obey his lord. But when he took the sword in his hand, he thought, Sin it is, and shameful, to throw away so glorious a sword. Then, hiding it again, he hastened back to the king. What sawest thou? said Sir Arthur. Sir, I saw the water lap on the crags. Then spoke the king in great wrath. Traitor and unkind, twice hast thou betrayed me. Art dazzled by the splendor of the jewels, thou that till now hast ever been dear and true to me? Go yet again, but if thou fail me this time, I will arise, and with my own hands slay thee. Then Sir Bevedere left the king, and that time he took the sword quickly from the place where he had hidden it, and, forbearing even to look upon it, he twisted the belt about it and flung it with all his force into the water. A wondrous sight he saw, for, as the sword touched the water, a hand rose from out the deep, caught it, brandished it thrice, and drew it beneath the surface. Sir Bevedere hastened back to the king and told him what he had seen. It is well, said Arthur. Now, bear me to the water's edge, and hasten, I pray thee, for I have tarried over long, and my wound has taken cold. So Sir Bevedere raised the king on his back and bore him tenderly to the lonely shore, where the lapping waves floated many an empty helmet, and the fitful moonlight fell on the upturned faces of the dead. Scarce had they reached the shore when there hove in sight a barge, and on its deck stood three tall women, robed all in black and wearing crowns on their heads. Place me in the barge, said the king, and softly Sir Bevedere lifted the king onto it. And these three queens wept sore over Arthur, and one took his head in her lap and chafed his hands, crying, Alas, my brother, thou hast been overlong in coming, and, I fear me, thy wound has taken cold. Then the barge began to move slowly from the land. When Sir Bevedere saw this, he lifted up his voice and cried with a bitter cry, Ah, my lord Arthur, thou art taken from me, and I, whither shall I go? Comfort thyself, said the king, for in me is no comfort more. I pass to the valley of Avalon to heal me of my grievous wound. If thou seest me never again, pray for me. So the barge floated away out of sight, and Sir Bevedere stood straining his eyes after it till it had vanished utterly. Then he turned him about and journeyed through the forest until, at daybreak, he reached a hermitage. Entering it, 
he prayed the holy hermit that he might abide with him, and there he spent the rest of his life in prayer and holy exercise. But of King Arthur is no more known. Some men, indeed, say that he is not dead, but abides in the happy valley of Avalon until such time as his country's need is sourced, when he shall come again and deliver it. Others say that, of a truth, he is dead, and that in the far west his tomb may be seen, and written on it these words. Here lies Arthur, once king and king to be. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. I hope you enjoyed this version of King Arthur. I think it provides a clear, condensed version from which you can springboard to lengthier treatments if you wish. We can add here that in a 2010 archaeological search by the University of Glasgow, they believe they have located the table at the King's Knot in Stirling, Scotland, safely buried beneath the now-protected and well-manicured geometrical earthwork in the former Royal Gardens which in days gone by served as a location for jousting tournaments. It was once called the King's Forest, the site which has been described as looking like a cup and saucer beneath a lunch bed of short grass has been cloaked in mystery for years. Their findings show there was indeed a round feature on the site that predates the visible earthworks. Archaeologists using remote sensing geophysics have located remains of a circular ditch and other earthworks beneath the King's Knot, the Telegraph quoted John Harrison, chair of the Sterling Local History Society, who initiated the project, as saying, The finds show that the present mound was created on an older site and throws new light on a tradition that King Arthur's Round Table was located in this vicinity, he added. The Round Table is King Arthur's famed table in the Arthurian legend, around which he and his knights congregated. The table was first described in 1155 by the author Waste, W-A-C-E, who relied on previous depictions of Arthur's fabulous retinue. The Arthurian legend has existed for over a thousand years and is just as compelling today as it was in the faraway days of its early creators, Geoffrey of Monmouth, Robert de Boron, Chrétien de Troyes, and perhaps most famously by Sir Thomas Mallory in his epic work, Le Mort d'Arthur, The Death of Arthur. Countless writers, poets, and artists, not to mention filmmakers and now webmasters, have been inspired by the life and times of King Arthur. Time for reviews. I got a big kick out of this first one, and these are all 1001 classic short stories and tales. The title, Our Favorite for Long Rides to Camp. <laughs> Rating five stars. It's become a tradition. We listen to this version of the Wendigo on our way home from our camping trips in the great North Woods. It is such a creepy story and told so well that we're scared to listen to it on the way up to camp. It's definitely a great podcast that makes the time fly by and let your imagination run wild. Subscribe to this podcast. You will not be disappointed. It sure is great to hear stories like this. And History Buff. Great podcast for the intellectual listener. And love it. I love all 1001 podcasts. The speaker is great to listen to, and I can hear the smile in his voice. I just smile along with him. And this one, great podcast 
I enjoy all of your podcasts. This one is no exception. I even enjoy the intro music. What's the name of that waltz that plays his intro music to this podcast? And I've got the answer for you. It's called The Dance of Ice and Moonlight. If you missed our 1001 Heroes episode on the knighthood in England, titled When Knighthood Stood for Courage, Honor, and Humility, I would suggest you check it out at www.1001storiespodcast.com or wherever great podcasts are found. I promise many more journeys for the future and can tell you that this entire podcast venture has been a fantastic journey. I hope you feel the same way. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. For some quick mental health facts, let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.